Hey, well, uh, good evening, everyone. Um, can I welcome you? It's, it feels very odd for me to be welcoming you to your church, because I've not even landed here yet. But um, uh, really great to be with um, you all today, and I hope and pray that tonight will be a real encouragement. It's been a great day so far, hasn't it? Um, I know a lot of people were here this morning. Uh, I was hugely encouraged to come out this morning, particularly hearing so many young people giving their lives to Christ and declaring the difference that he's made in their lives. And it's just such a joy, isn't it, seeing the next generation come through who are trusting in him. And I really pray that tonight we will encourage each other uh, as we continue off the encouragement this morning uh, and just remember the great news of the gospel. Our loving Father, we do just rejoice today at the great truth that you have risen indeed. We thank you that death has been destroyed. We thank you that Satan has ultimately been destroyed and that those who belong to Christ, who know you, uh, will live forever. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for the wonderful day that today has been, the great opportunity of the church family to rejoice in the gracious work of your spirit in people's lives, moving people to come to understand who the Lord Jesus is and come to a living faith in you. We thank you and praise you for each story that we heard this morning that is a testimony to the work that you've been doing in each person's life. I thank you so much that the stories are so different and yet so real as people testify to the difference you have made in their lives. So Lord, as we gather as a church tonight to worship you, to lift your name on high, please help us to focus on the great truths of the gospel. We thank you that these are the things that unite us as a church. And I pray that just for the next few moments you would help us to put out of our minds all that might be distracting us, all that might take our focus off you, and that we would meet with you tonight and leave this place changed and wanting to serve you in the week ahead. Now we thank you and praise you for the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and for new life by your spirit. And I pray that you would meet with us tonight and we would meet with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that this has been a special day in so many ways. Uh, we thank you that it is the day when we remember that you conquered death and that we need have no fear of our future if we are trusting you. And we thank you for those testimonies that we heard this morning of those who have put their trust in you. And we would pray that those who do not know you, those who heard those testimonies this morning would have been challenged and would be encouraged to seek you out and would look to you. We pray that eternal blessing would come out of that witness that was this morning. And we pray for those young men and for Emma who shared their testimony with us this morning. We pray that you would protect them over these next days and help them in their witness as they, as they go about their daily lives. We pray that they would know the reality of your presence with them, encouraging them and strengthening them day by day. We thank you that we can trust you even Perhaps when the going gets tough, we know that you will be with us and we pray that we would be 
assured of that reality when perhaps we're finding things difficult. We thank you that you have said you will be with us and we pray we would know that day by day. And we pray that in that knowledge we would have the confidence to share our faith with those around about us, with those that we meet day by day. We pray that our witness would not be confined within these four walls, but we pray that as we go day by day to where we work, to where we're at school, to the neighbours that live around about us, you would go with us and you would make us bold in our testimony to those we meet. We thank you that your resurrection message is not just for us here in this place. We thank you that we've been sharing today with your people all around the world. And we're mindful of other churches where we have an interest that will also have been celebrating your resurrection today. We pray that you would continue to grow your church not only in this place but around the world and that it would be so clear that you are victorious as your church moves forwards and grows. We thank you for the assurance that we have and we pray that as we continue in our worship now and in the days ahead, you would bless us and go with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. The reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 23. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you had taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, 
and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how, come, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ, has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For, in, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Thanks very much. Uh, well, do, uh, do keep that passage open. It's uh, one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. I'd love to teach the whole of 1 Corinthians 15 because it's kind of the climax to an amazing book. Um, but it would be a very long sermon because it's a great chapter. So we're just going to have a look at the first 23 uh, verses. So do please keep it open in front of you. Uh, let me pray as uh, we come to God's word now. Loving Father, we thank you that just as we have sung praises to you as Lord, we also acknowledge that you are a speaking God, that you speak to us today right into our hearts. And please would you encourage us with this passage. Please would you blow our minds with a truth that perhaps is very familiar and may have grown stale and cold. I pray that each of us um, would leave this church tonight full of joy in the resurrection and in greater confidence of our own resurrection one day. Uh, please would you speak into each of our hearts by your spirit now. Amen. Great, well, um, it's been a great day and I love baptisms. When Jeff invited me to come and speak tonight, I was really happy and then he told me there was baptism services in the morning and I sort of said, well, can I come up in the morning as well because I love baptisms. It's a great day, isn't it, when we celebrate uh, new life. 
Um, we don't know, for each of the people who, who were baptised, some will have come to faith over a period of time. For others it would be much quicker. But it's just a great joy when you see when God has been at work in people's lives and, and come to faith in him. Um, but I want to start tonight by, I'm afraid, telling each of us why following Jesus is really a waste of time. And that's not what you're expecting from the person you just appointed to come and be one of the pastors of the church here, but I'm going to tell you that anyway, because that's what I want to tell you. Following Jesus is a waste of time. I'll tell you why. I live um, just at a place called Southgate in North London. So M25, big motorway, and just at 12 o'clock, just inside, is a place called Southgate. Top of the Piccadilly line. I also head into London to see my best friend, a guy called John. Um, he's going to be my best man at my wedding. And um, we often meet up to have a drink and a chat and catch up. Uh, London's a really impressive place. Uh, you go into maybe Parliament and you see the power of the politicians at Westminster. And then you head east a bit into the city and uh, there's a really posh public school there. Uh, really bright um, girls and guys uh, learning. And then a little bit further, lots of them grow up and, and end up working in the city. And you've got these massive, great big buildings. And there are lights on late into the night and people earning loads of money because they're brilliant at what they do. And the harder you work, the more you get rewarded. It's a really impressive place. Then you kind of head over to Soho or Leicester Square, Trafalgar Square, Covent Garden. It's just entertainment. It's a really great place to go. You go there at Christmas time, they're selling mulled wine. You go there in the summer and there's entertainers out. It's just a brilliant place to be. Head down uh, onto the South Bank, um, particularly when the sun comes out, and it's just amazing. Uh, people enjoying the restaurants and the bars and just relaxing after a day's work. Now you head over to Kensington and you get these massive great big mansions. Uh, I did some work there recently and apparently the big fad at the moment is basement extensions. Once you've gone up two or three floors, you go down two. Uh, I met one bloke um, who has built a swimming pool underneath his four-story house and he's built a tennis court under the swimming pool. He's got more money than cents, uh, but that's what they're all doing and it's just an impressive place. Tons of money around. And then you go a little bit around the corner from Kensington and you've got the Natural History Museum, you've got the, um, the Science Museum, uh, it's just a really impressive place uh, and they're really tributes to how wonderful we are as British people and all that we've achieved and you kind of get on the train you head down to Surrey and there's big houses with tennis courts and swimming pools uh, and everyone's very comfortable driving nice cars and you may even come up to a little village called Long Crendon and it's pretty comfortable a lovely place to live and people are generally well off and, and enjoying life that's the world and it's just impressive isn't it and then you look at us as Christians and it's pretty unimpressive, isn't it? I mean, we celebrate Good Friday, and that's some sort of sick joke, right? Because the cross is a horrible form of torture. Uh, and we celebrate the fact that a man died on a cross. And then Christians all gather together and get really happy on Easter Sunday, rejoicing that Jesus Christ has risen again. Well, nice for you Christians, but that's just ridiculous, because people don't rise again. If you're dead, you're dead. And you hold up the power and the prestige of the world, London, it's just amazing. And then you look at, sometimes, Christian believers, and it just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Why am I a Christian? It's a complete waste of time, because the world is just so powerful, and yet what we believe is just so pathetic. I mean, the people still believe in this stuff in the 21st century. Well, you'd be pleased to know I don't believe that that is true. You'd be really pleased to know, how long I get the stat before I get here. But that is what a lot of the world thinks, isn't it? They do think that the world is where it's all at, and... What we believe as Christians is just so weak and, uh, and rubbish. And I want to encourage us tonight, that's really not true. I don't believe that for a minute. I believe that the Christian gospel is the most powerful thing in the world and the most wonderful thing at the same time. 
And we're looking at a passage of scripture that will hugely help us as we try to unpack the meaning of the resurrection for each of us in our lives. Sometimes you come to the Bible and you think, well, it was written 2,000 years ago. Is it really relevant to my life? Did the writers really get me? I think Corinth is a great example of why that's not true. Uh, the city of Corinth was a kind of cross between London and Las Vegas. It was an amazing place of power, amazing place of education and wealth, a melting pot of cultures. It's a really impressive place. And in amongst this massive great culture that was very impressive, there was this small group of Christians in the early church. They were the Corinthian Christians. They hadn't been going very long. And the Apostle Paul writes to this church to encourage them because he wants them to grasp the wonderful truth that they believe. And so actually our culture is not that different to Corinth at all. Uh, and we have a huge amount we can learn from this passage. And do you notice, just in the first couple of verses, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Now, why did he start a chapter like that? It's because he knows how easy it would be just to be sucked into this great world of Corinth that's so impressive. London, Las Vegas. And give up meeting his Christian believers because it's just pathetic. He knows that. It's the same struggle that we struggle with. And so he writes right at the beginning and says, I want to remind you of this gospel because this gospel is where it's at. This gospel is where there's power. This gospel's wonderful. And so he starts off. Notice a little bit later in verse 12, he says, he's kind of playing with him, he says, look, if I preach that Christ had been raised from the dead, how can you, some of you say that there's no resurrection? But that's clearly what some of the Christians are saying, influenced by the culture around them. I don't believe someone can rise again. That's ridiculous. And then verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Like what I'm doing now is a complete waste of time. And so is your faith. You coming here and listening to me is a complete waste of time. Then verse 16. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That means a waste of time. And you're still in your sins. And then verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied beyond all men. You can see why so many people perhaps look in at the Christian faith and pity us. Oh well, you can believe that stuff if you want. It's pretty weak and one day you'll be enlightened and come to a, a truth of what life's really about. But you believe it if you like. But the great thing is we're not to be pitied. Christian believers are not to be pitied. We are to be the envy of the world because we believe in the most amazing gospel. The most amazing treasure. And that's exactly what this passage speaks about. So if you're here tonight and you're a Christian believer, I really want just to encourage you. Now, this is a familiar passage, it's a familiar time of year when we remember Easter, but I want to encourage you that the truth that you believe and the difference that's made to your life is truly wonderful and you can never move beyond that, never grow up from the Christian faith to something greater. I want to encourage you with that truth that you know. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask you this question. Are you sure about your unbelief? Are you sure that rubbishing the Christian faith and not following Jesus is really the best way to go? Are you sure? Would you really stake your life on that? Because I'm going to expose in a moment, and this passage will expose why that is a very dangerous place to be. 
Uh, just over the last few weeks, I've um, been uh, writing some essays and um, taking a bit of study time. It's been absolutely brilliant. And one of the essays I've had to write is a kind of crit of Christopher Hitchens' book, uh, God is Not Great. Um, his writing's a bit dated now. There's new guys who are coming on the scene. But Christopher Hitchens is a little great world leader of atheism, trying to write at a popular level to persuade people why belief in the existence of God is a, a joke and why God is not great. And I read this book to sort of write a review on it and um, write a sort of crit on it, and I was really disappointed as I read it. Because it's just a rubbish book. I, I read stuff that's so much more compelling that really gets me thinking, is being a Christian right? But I read this book and there's just no argument. And yet here's a guy who's sort of world-known in terms of triumphing athe- atheism, and he's chucking out all this stuff about why being a Christian is a waste of time, why God is not great. And actually there's no argument at all. He's just using emotive language to kind of draw you in and you think, oh yeah, you're onto something here. But actually when you stop and think about the truth, they don't, they don't add up. And they don't hold water at all. So I wrote this essay and it was really frustrating because I wanted something to get my teeth into and I found it was just very easy to find holes in his arguments. But actually, I know atheists who've got far stronger arguments for, against the existence of God than this man. But if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus and it's not a living faith for you, I just want to ask you, are you sure about your unbelief? Okay, well, perhaps more of us are here. We believe in Jesus, we've put our trust in him, but perhaps we're at times asking questions. How can I be sure it's true? I want assurance. Every Christian at times will have doubts. That's normal Christian experience. How can I be sure? Is it really true? I mean, we're a pretty small group, and there's thousands of people out there who don't believe what we're doing. Maybe this is all a bit of a joke. Can I be sure? Have a look at verse 3. Look what Paul says. What I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. I've got friends who I've shown that to, and they said... There you go again, Mark. Your great circular argument you Christians use all the time. You're trying to use the Bible to prove the Bible's true. I don't even believe the Bible's true. It's a joke. How can you use the Bible to prove that the Bible is true? It's a circular argument. It doesn't work. And I turn to them and say, you know, you're absolutely right. Apart from one thing. If the Bible is the highest authority, there's no higher authority to appeal anywhere because it is God's word, then it doesn't matter that it's a circular argument, because you can't go somewhere else where there's more authority to prove that the most authoritative thing that's ever been spoken is true. It's not a circular argument, because it's God's word. Now, of course, that requires you to believe that it's God's word, and experience that it's God's word. But if that's true, using the Bible to prove the Bible's true is not a flawed argument at all. It's actually the most powerful argument in the world. You think about how, when the world came into being, in the beginning, God said. He's a speaking God. That's what I just prayed. God spoke and the entire cosmos came into being. That's the power of his word. And so when we use the scriptures to prove that the scriptures are true and what they testify about who Jesus is, we're really falling back on the very word of God which brought this whole existence, the whole world into being. That brought us into being. Isn't that staggering? And that's exactly why Paul appeals to the scriptures. The scriptures that point us to who Jesus is. 
That's why we can have confidence in who he is, because the scriptures are his word. And this is how he goes on. Not only am I going to ask you to believe this gospel and to have confidence in it because it's written in the scriptures, but he says, verse 5, as well as that, he, Jesus, also appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, the disciples minus Judas, who betrayed Jesus, plus Matthias, who became the next one to replace him. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and later he appeared to me. That's Paul. So what Paul is saying is you've got the scriptures that testify the word of God, the same power that brought the whole world into being. They are testifying to this being true, and then you've got all these witnesses. And they're testifying to it being true too. And that's why he says, verse 2, that's why you don't believe in vain. That's why, verse 7, that's why your faith is not futile. That's why, verse 19, Christians are not to be pitied. We don't just believe in a myth. We believe in something that you can go and check because the scriptures have been written and verified and they've stood the test of time. We've heard Christopher Hitchens and all his arguments many times. They've never added up. The scriptures do because they're true. And they testify to a living God. Okay, well maybe you ask that question and then you come on and ask the next question. And this is a really important question for us to get. Okay, you go, okay, I really believe in the confidence of scripture and I believe that Jesus died, I believe he rose again, I believe that if I put my trust in him and forgive me of my sin, I can have new life. But this is the real killer, this question. What difference actually does that make? Because if believing in Jesus doesn't actually make a difference in my life, I agree with all my friends who don't believe in him. What's the point? There is no point. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that it transforms my life. It transforms our life and changes us. I've, um, I've gone to Africa a number of times on kind of uh, short-term mission trips, taking groups of university students. I absolutely love it. And uh, most of the time we've gone to really, really poor communities, kind of slums in Kampala and Uganda, or really, really poor um, places out in the bush. I absolutely love it. And one of the games I've learned that the uh, very, very poor African children love is they love it when you take your phone along or your camera and you hold them all around and you get in the picture with them and you kind of take a selfie and you take a picture of all of them and then you turn the camera around and show them and they see a picture of themselves. It seems silly to us that some of the children have never, ever seen what they look like other than perhaps looking in a muddy pool of water. That's a pretty rubbish image. And you show them what they look like and they smile more and more and you do it again and again and they love this game. Well, can you imagine if when I left Africa each time I left my smartphone or my camera with them. They'd have the stuff, the technology, it's kind of like they'd have the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but they wouldn't know what to do with it. They wouldn't know which buttons to press because no one's ever taught them. So it's not really going to be any good to them. And I think it's a bit like that in life. Sometimes we can really know about Jesus and his death and resurrection, but we don't know the so what. Or at least we don't slow down enough to think about the so what. What difference is it going to make in my life? If they have my camera but can't use it, it's not going to be fun for them and it's not going to make any difference to their life. And if you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus, they're two very, very different places to be. And that's what Paul's writing about here. So what difference will it make? And that's what he comes really in the punch of this chapter to explain. 
Just notice, verse 6, verse 18 and verse 20. 6, 18 and 20. Do you spot a funny little phrase that Paul uses? He uses this phrase, fallen asleep, doesn't he? Now we all love sleep, I'm guessing a lot of us love sleeping. You know that feeling when you just get in bed and it's cold outside and you get all the duvet over you and you're snuggled up and it's warm and safe and you just love it. I'm not a great sleeper, so I love it for a little bit and I get quite bored and I want to wake up and have a new day. But some people love sleeping. It's a great feeling. You compare the feeling of sleep with the experience of death. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead person, a dead body, perhaps a loved one. I'm sure many people here have, and it's a really galling experience. It's terrible. When you see a person lying there who's dead and there is no life in them, it appears there's just no hope at all. They're very dead, and it's so different to a person who's just sleeping. You know they're going to wake again, and there's a new day ahead, and it's going to be full of joy. It's funny here, because when Paul speaks about death, he doesn't speak about this kind of death. He speaks about falling asleep. Not because he's saying you're not really dead. You know, it's just an illusion. He's saying yeah, you're really dead. But if you believe in Jesus and what he's done for you, death is like sleep. And so he, he speaks about people who've died as those fallen asleep. It's an amazing kind of picture. Now, how can he say that? Have a look at verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Another funny phrase, the first fruits. What's all that about? Uh, well, I must confess, as I was trying to read Christian Hitchens, I got a bit frustrated, so I uh, climbed up on the roof of the building where I, I live. Um, there's a little way up through, uh, climbing up some tiles, probably not very uh, legal, but I climb up there anyway. There's a lovely flat roof on the top, and you can just lie in the sun and read Christopher Hitchens or whatever book you want to read. And this time of year, it's fabulous. I've been out there the last couple of weeks. All the buds are coming through and the blossom is on the trees and the daffodils are coming and, and all the plants are coming and you know what's happening summer's coming I love this time of year and all the colours of the trees are beginning to change well when you see the buds first appear or the flowers just beginning to come up after a cold winter that's the first fruit but what does that tell you? it tells you that something's coming even better the bloom of the trees the colours of, of spring and then summer the first fruit is just the beginning what's coming is even better and here Paul writes about Jesus' resurrection as being like the first fruits the bud the beginning yes it's incredible we can enjoy spring now but doesn't it get even more incredible in the summer when those buds become trees and plants and all the colours come out when Jesus rose again he is the first fruits of what is to come do you notice verse 20 Christ has indeed been raised, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep, but each in turn, Christ the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. That's talking about you and me, if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus Christ has risen again, if you've trusted him, you'll rise again too. He's the first fruit. But it's almost like his church is the bumper crop, and all together will be raised on the last day. And it's only possible because he has already beaten death. Well, perhaps you're asking the question, okay, how does that really work? Because that sounds kind of amazing, but how does that work? Well, verse uh, 22 helps us. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. 
I want to try and um, just sort of draw a little picture of what this looks like. Um, the Bible uses two phrases all the time, and they're two, I think, one, uh, some of the most amazing and important phrases to unpack and understand. What it means to be in Adam and in Christ. So in that Adam was the first man, representative of all humanity, he was the first man. So I need to sort of act this out. Philip, can you help me? Adam is the first man. Adam, okay? I'm God in this illustration. When I created Adam, I was, created him to be in a relationship with me. So we can communicate, and part of being made in the image of God means that I am made to know Adam, and Adam is made to relate to me and know me as God. But when Adam said to God, shove off, I don't want to have you in my life, he turned around, he turned his back on God, and he went off on his own way. He tried to do life his own way. And so what do I have to do as a perfect God? I have to punish that which is not perfect. And so Adam is under my judgment because I'm a good God and I can't just let rebellion against me, God, go untouched. So I punish Adam and I cast him out of the garden and he's under my judgment forever. But the really terrible thing is, just as Adam has turned his back on me and faces my judgment, so do everyone else in humanity. As Adam has gone, so we go. So if Adam joins hands, as it were, with Helen here, just to represent the picture, as Adam has died, so too Helen has now died, because she turned her back on me, God. And effectively, each of you would join hands with her. That's what it means in the Bible to be in Adam. As Adam has rejected God and now is under God's judgment, so too are you and me. But you see, in that little verse, what about those who are in Christ? I have another volunteer. Could you just come and help me? That's great. I'm still God. In fact, I'm not God. God's here. I'll be Jesus now. God, God looks at this and he says, I made human beings. I'm so passionate about human beings. They can't be out of my presence. They can't be under my judgment. I don't want that. That's not right. I'm going to do something about it. So Jesus comes into the world. Here he is. And he's God in, in, in human form. And he's come into the world and he's so passionate about rescuing Helen because Helen belongs to him and he wants to know her. So he goes over and grabs Helen by the hand and he rescues her because she puts her trust in him. And Helen comes with Jesus to be in Christ over here. He's come this way. And then Jesus goes back again and he finds someone else in Adam. We can rescue Adam, that's great. And rescues Adam and he brings him through again to new life in Christ. That is the work of Jesus, to get people who are in Adam under judgment who are going to be cut off from God for all of eternity and rescue them. And the extraordinary thing is that the power of Jesus Christ to release people from the burden of death and sin and judgment is so much more powerful than death itself. And that's why Jesus can keep rescuing him. And if we did this illustration more, he could rescue each of you if you would put your trust in him. Coming from in... Thank you very much. Coming from in Adam to being in Christ. That's exactly what this passage is speaking about. And because that is true, look at how the chapter ends. These are some of the most amazing verses, I think, in the whole of Scripture. Look at verses 54 to 57. At the end of this amazing chapter, Paul kind of breaks out in a song. He just can't, he can't contain himself anymore. And look what he says. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? He's almost like playing with death now. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus did 
on that first Easter is he took people who were in Adam and he rescued them and brought them to be in Christ. And I know that's true for so many of you here tonight. And that's just wonderful. Just as we come to a close, last question that perhaps you're asking. This is a great question as well. Okay, I don't think believing, following Jesus is a waste of time. I believe it's really true. I am going to doubt my unbelief and I'm going to put my trust in him. How can I be sure? Some people have doubts. Well, that's normal. What difference would it really make to follow Jesus? And then this last one. How can it be real for me? How can these truths be real for me so I know that they're true and I want to live my life in light of them? How can I be sure? Just go back to the beginning of the chapter. Have a look at what Paul writes in verse 9. He says, I'm the least of the apostles and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here he is, he's saying, I hated God. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. I just wanted life my own way. I wanted my independence. I didn't want God in my life. But how does he go on? I love this verse, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. I think the most staggering truth in the whole world is that when God chooses to shine his light into your heart by his grace and opens your eyes so that you can see who he is and opens your heart so it can be warm to the truth of who he is it's like that light bulb moment he has turned the light on there that's what Paul testifies to here I am what I am his grace to me was not without effect why? because when God shines his light into a person's heart and says I am rescuing them and he pulls them from being in Adam to being in Christ no one can stop him because he's the God of the universe he spoke and the world came into being that's his power I just want to remind us of that if we're Christian believers and you put your trust in him it's not because you've figured out the Christian faith intellectually and you're cleverer than somebody else it's not because there's something in you that's inherently wonderful more wonderful than the person next to you so God said I love him because he is wonderful and I'll choose him but I won't choose her because she's not wonderful if he has chosen you and he has called you to be his son or his daughter it's simply because he has been gracious to you not because you deserve it not because I deserve it but because he's a God of grace he's a God who gives and that is a staggering truth because it means that none of us earn our salvation by getting it right but we're saved when he works his spirit in our life and transforms us. Just have a look again at verses 1 and 2 at the beginning of the chapter. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you took your stand. By this gospel you're saved. Why did he start the chapter emphasising this? This gospel, friends, not a different gospel. This gospel, why? Because it's this gospel that has the power to save. There's no other name under heaven or earth by which we may be saved other than the name of Jesus so he says to them this is the gospel that you need to cling to when you're living in Las Vegas or London in the impressive world and you're this little group of Christians who look pathetic you're not pathetic because you're believing the gospel and that's where the power is when it talks here about taking your stand what he really means is responding to the gospel in faith and belief 
Notice also, just as the chapter started, take your stand. Where does the chapter end? Verse 58. Brothers and sisters, stand firm. It's the same phrase. See, the gospel is the platform. But what do you do when you have a platform, when you have a foundation? What do you do? You build on it. The gospel is a platform. We can't build on anything other than the gospel. When we have it, that's what we build on. And when Paul calls us to stand firm, he's saying, stand firm on me, on the gospel that will never, ever be moved, that has power to save people in death. And build on that by trusting me and continuing to trust me every single day of your life. That's the Christian message. How you get into the Christian life is how you go on. And you mature as a Christian, of course, but you build on the same foundation. And that's exactly what Paul is writing about here. And that's why he's able to say, as we come to a close, verse 58, Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. When, you, when you're praying for people who don't know Christ, and you're seeking to be a godly husband or godly wife or godly parent, a godly son or daughter, when you're seeking to be a witness to your work colleagues or your friends at university or your classmates, why is it that you can do that with the strength that God gives you and you know it's not in vain? It's because you're standing firm on the gospel. And God will save people. And so you can be greatly encouraged that as you take a stand of faith and seek to trust him, he'll be at work in your life and he'll work through you. And just as his grace has taken hold of you, he'll take hold of other people too. And those who are in Adam, with no hope at all, facing judgment and all of eternity without God, will be rescued and be in Christ. And that, friends, is the most secure place you could ever be in the whole world. Because death will never, ever snatch you out of the hands of a man who has an answer to death. That's why the gospel is powerful. So if you're here tonight and that is not real for you, but you know the truth of the gospel, but you've never really put your trust in him, I just challenge you with your unbelief. Because you'd be absolutely right to live life without Jesus Christ if you've got an answer to your biggest problem, which is death. But eventually it catches up with all of us, doesn't it? And we don't want to spend all of eternity in Adam because that's not what we're designed for. And yet the glory of the gospel is that each of us, if we respond to this great Easter message, can be in Christ and can know him for ourselves. And that is something to sing about. And that's what we're going to do now. So just as the music group come up, why don't you just take a moment of quiet in your own heart to respond to God's word. We're going to sing this song, Jesus is Lord, the cry that echoes. And it's just a great truth that because he is Lord, he is the one who can do business in his world and he can rescue people. So we can stand with the band and sing this. And then what I'd love to do, just to end the service, be really great if one or two of you could just come to the front where the mic's here and just lead the church in some short prayers of thanks to our Lord so that we can encourage each other with each of us praying and thanking him for what he's done in our lives. So I just invite one or two of you to come up after this song and just lead us in a prayer and then we'll draw the service to a close. Just be great if one or two could just come to the front and lead us to the church in prayer. Does anyone like to do that? Thanks, Jeff. And do one or two others, if you'd like to come up, just do come and pray. I'll pray. 
Lord, our Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this celebration, this Easter celebration. Lord, where we celebrate your coming into the world and your humbling yourself, Lord, to become even one of us. Lord, that is the most amazing truth that anybody can come to understand. And Lord, we ask you, Lord, it's such an enormous truth and so difficult for us to grasp and to understand. We ask you, we plead with you, Lord of heaven and earth, that Lord, you would translate that truth into our hearts. Lord, that it would become a truly heartfelt truth and not just a head knowledge. Amen. Our Father God, we thank you that you are the God of all grace. We thank you that we have no right of ourselves to claim you, to come to you, to know you, that you, in your mercy, have called us and rescued us and brought us into your kingdom, have brought us into life. You swapped your pain and suffering for life for us and we thank you Lord and we just want to pray Lord for not just all of us here but all those with whom we're involved for those who are struggling at this time struggling with doubt struggling with illness we think Lord particularly of Josiah Lord we want to see you having an effect in lives Thank you for all that we have seen today. But thank you, Lord, that you have much more to show us. Lord, we look forward to seeing the effect that you can have in many lives. We want you to be honoured and glorified. Amen. Can I just like to pray? Let's close then. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for being able to meet as your church, your people today. We thank you so much to hear the testimonies of Elliot and Ross and Joe and Emma and Eric. And we thank you so much for the work you've clearly been doing in each of their lives. Please, tonight as their heads hit the pillow, I pray that they would just be so full of joy that they know that they belong to you. Please give them that great sense of assurance that you give in your words. By your spirit, Lord, please equip them because we know that as people take a stand for you the devil just wants to snatch away those truths snatch our joy and to lead us away from Christ I pray for each of them Lord as we've been thinking tonight that we would stand firm and stand firm with them that by your spirit you give us strength to support and encourage them as they continue to grow as Christian believers and please help us each to stand firm in that great gospel this week I pray that we wouldn't just live knowing these truths but as Jeff has prayed we would know these truths in our heart they would be real to us please would you help us to live resurrection lives this week knowing that you are Lord and Father God we thank you for the privilege to be able to meet as your church and I pray that you would send us out from here um, loving each other and wanting to make a difference in your world Amen Should we say the grace together as we close may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Have a great week.